This morning we will remain in Acts chapter 8. We have come to verse 9 now of Acts 8. And I would like to read this portion of Scripture to you before we examine it closely. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. Now, there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great wonders taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Here we have a fascinating historical illustration of self-deception. Though the names and the circumstances might be different, this same kind of spiritual self-deception can be seen over and over again in the lives of many people who name the name of Christ. Individuals looking for some kind of supernatural phenomenon to add to their life, to make them more successful to make them more fulfilled, to make them more popular, more wealthy, more powerful, or whatever. And like Simon the Magician, many people become fascinated with Christianity. And Jesus becomes for them the answer to their problems and the advancer of their agendas. And like Simon, they believe. They get baptized. They join a church, join in with other Christians. And on the outside, they look like all of the rest of the Christians around them. The tares among the wheat. 
And yet on the inside, there's really been no transformation whatsoever. Simon possessed a dead faith that cannot save. He was never broken over his sin. He never saw really the need for for a savior. As we will see, there was no fear of God, no godly sorrow that would lead to repentant faith. There was no love and secret devotion to God, no desire for his glory. There was no desire to commune with him in prayer, no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, no separation from the world, no appetite for the word, because there was no transformation. He was merely a celebrity tear that Satan planted among the wheat of the early church. And of course, Jesus warned us much of this, especially in Matthew 7. Remember, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Ancient church historians, including some of the church fathers, give us reports that Simon went on to make all kinds of extravagant claims. Some say that he pretended to be the father who gave the law to Moses. Some say that uh, he claimed to be the Messiah that he claimed that the woman who accompanied him called Helen was Minerva or the first intelligence and so on. Some consider that basically Simon and his successor Menander were among the first false teachers to introduce the bizarre religious philosophy of Gnosticism that plagued the church for many, many centuries. Well, tragically, Simon will be among those, unless he repented and we don't know it, who will someday come before the Lord and the Lord will say to him, as Jesus indicated in Matthew 7, 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. While Simon illustrates a self-deceived man who professes Christ but does not possess him as Savior and Lord. He is also, I believe, a prototype or a model of a cultist, especially a cult leader. And if you've ever had any interaction with cult leaders, you will quickly see some of the parallels. Before we examine the text, let me remind you a little bit about cults. As we look at a definition of cults, we can see that they are basically a body of organized practices and beliefs that are typically regarded as false or unorthodox and extremist. And many times the people that are involved in the cult will claim that they have interaction with or control over certain supernatural powers, especially the leaders of the cult. Members of the sect will often live outside the boundaries of normal, conventional society and have great veneration for a charismatic leader who would be leading them and holding them together by his claims of supernatural powers and also their claims that they receive direct revelation from God. One expert source reports that they find that, quote, the leaders are accountable to no one. The leaders dictate how members should think and what to believe, and the members do so without question, convinced that they alone possess the truth, end quote. They go on to say that the leaders are masters at 
brainwashing primarily through mind altering practices such as meditation and chanting and speaking in tongues and denunciation sessions that they will have and and debilitating work routines. And if anyone ever questions the cult leader or leaders, anyone ever doubts or dissents, they will be put to shame and punished. And the group very often will be preoccupied with bringing other people into the organization. And almost without exception, the people that are a part of a cult will be forbidden to socialize with people outside of their own group and required to spend excessive amounts of time promoting the goals of the cult and so on. Now, certainly when we look at the New Testament, we see many of the characteristics of false teachers, of cult leaders and so on. Peter and Jude warn us that they are dreamers. Many of them will claim that, for example, that they have special revelation that comes from God. And we can see this, for example, in some of the more well-known cults that we have to deal with here in our culture. For example, Christian Science had Mary Baker Eddy. The Worldwide Church of God had Herbert W. Armstrong. The Mormons had Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. Even Islam had their so-called Prophet Muhammad. Scientology had L. Ron Hubbard. The Unification Church had Sun Young Moon. And then also we can see it in some of the quasi-Christian groups. Some people within these groups may be Christian, but it's kind of hard to understand because the doctrinal beliefs that some of these groups have are so heretical that it makes you wonder how anybody could possibly know Christ and still be a part of the groups. Such things, for example, as the Seventh-day Adventists. They had their prophetess, Mary Ellen White. And then there's the Oneness Pentecostal group with Frank Ewart. And then you've got the Word Faith Movement that is so popular today with people like Oral Roberts and Mike Murdoch and Joyce Myers, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Marilyn Hickey, T.D. Jakes, Robert Schuler, Paul Crouch, um, Rob Parsley, Rod Parsley and those types of people. And then even locally, we've got one that came up um, several years ago. I remember when I first started pastoring Calvary Bible Church, this began to get popular. It was the Way Down Workshop with Gwen Shamlin. And now she has the Remnant Fellowship. And on and on it goes. Now the question is, why do people get like this? How do they get like this? What drives them? What predisposes a person to be this way? Well, I believe as we look at the very sad saga of Simon Magus here in Acts 8, we begin to see a little bit more of what even the New Testament speaks about, in, in, especially in Second Peter and Jude, with respect to um, false teachers. We get a little bit more perspective. And here today we're going to see... I believe, four characteristics of a cultist, especially a cult leader. And the first characteristic that we will see is that Simon wanted to be worshipped. Indeed, pride is really at the root of false teachers. Notice verse 9. Now, there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria. Now, let's stop for a moment. I want you to understand this issue of magic 
Magic is really a word stemming from the word magi. The magi were the priestly line of the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire. They would be tantamount to the Levites with the Jews. They were skilled in science, in mathematics, in astronomy, in history, and the occult. They were, as we read in Matthew, even the wise men that came to worship Jesus, some of them, and I'll explain, explain that a bit more perhaps even next week as we begin to discuss things more relevant to the Christian season or the Christmas season. But you will remember in Matthew 2, they, the Magi came from the east. These were the Persian kingmakers. In fact, nobody became king in that empire unless the Magi said they could. And no doubt they heard of the promised Messiah uh, from Daniel, who saved the lives of the Magi. Remember when in Daniel, when the, the Magi were unable to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel could and he asked that their lives be spared. And Daniel was then promoted, according to Daniel 5.19, to be chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Well, the point with all of this is to say that magi were sorcerers that were skilled in occult practices, especially the interpretation of dreams. They were skilled in trickery, the sleight of hand, as well as in what we might call witchcraft, using demonic spirits, conjuring up demonic spirits to accomplish all manner of things. And this was the craft that Simon practiced. He was a magician. He was a sorcerer who could use both clever tricks as well as demonic spirits to get people to worship him. And they did, according to verse 9, he was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. How different from the Apostle Paul, who admitted that he was the chief of sinners, who admitted that he was a slave of Christ. Not so with Simon, verse 10, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now, again, we see this kind of thing routinely, even in our culture today, magicians that are skilled in the sleight of hand. They're able to use science, uh, chemistry, technology. To produce amazing illusions to astonish people. And many of them are also steeped in the occult. Many of them are demonically empowered to do things that are supernatural. Not just to entertain, but to get rich as well as to be worshipped and take advantage of people. And we also see this in the quasi-Christian shamanism of faith healers. We see that in Pentecostalism, certainly in the word faith movement and in some of the extreme ends of, of the charismatic movement. Charlatans that are able to use trickery as well as demons to astonish naive and ignorant and often very desperate followers. In fact, at the very heart of the word faith movement is this incredible heresy that in essence says that we are all little gods. An amazing thing. And like the Samaritans who were astonished at Simon's powers, many people today are very, very gullible. In fact, you will see when these kinds of, 
of cult leaders come to town, these false teachers, they will pack out stadiums and people will send. It's literally a billion dollar industry to somehow get these hucksters to perform what they do and to give them some kind of a personal miracle and so on. And so I would submit to you that these kind of people are desperate to be worshipped. When you listen to them, the emphasis is never on the message. It's always on the man. When you watch them, they want to dazzle the people, not glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. They're self-centered, not Christ-centered. And the New Testament repeatedly warns us that they are filled with deception, with greed, with immorality, and an appetite for power. And their followers are easy prey because... Most of them are doctrinally illiterate and they're filled with magical thinking. And we have a lot of that in our culture today. In fact, I want to digress here for just a moment before we go back to the text. You know, I believe that our culture is becoming increasingly desensitized to the enormous dangers of the occult, of the kingdom of darkness. Remember, the word of God tells us that Satan is the God, small g, of this world. The whole world lies within his control. God is sovereignly over all of it, but he is allowing this to happen to ultimately fulfill his glorious purposes. But we are constantly warned to be beware of the clever schemes of the devil. And I believe many times, even as Christians, we fail to take that seriously. How many times I see Christians watching horror shows that exalt Satan and his minions in the kingdom of darkness. How many times I see Christians dabbling with astrology and horoscopes and some even using these fortune tellers, which I understand is also now a billion dollar industry. I see Christians fascinated with things like Harry Potter with video games that glamorize wickedness. Children thinking that they are somehow empowered to defeat these kind of funny-looking demons, these hideous demon-like creatures with the push of a button. Recently, I had a concerned parent talk with me about their child's obsession with what was called Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And as I did a little research on that, Yu-Gi-Oh stands for Game King in Japanese, it's a card game, kind of a dueling monsters type of thing. And I, I did some research on it, and I found that children here get lost in a fantasy world of magic wizards and sorcerers that cast spells, of demonic priests and dark rulers and devils that have special powers. And it all seems rather innocent, you know, kind of kids having fun with fantasy things. But as you look at it, children here are directing these demonic-looking monsters to attack and destroy. And my concern to this parent was that this child, and I believe this is true with many children who dabble with these types of things, that this child is being systematically desensitized to the dangerous world of the occult. That little by little, these things don't bother them. A strategy, by the way, that the homosexual activists are using in our culture to systematically desensitize you to the abomination of homosexuality, to get you so used to it that it no longer bothers you anymore. 
And even with this child, with these Yu-Gi-Oh cards, I found that it very quickly became an obsession with this child to the point of idolatry. And we found that to be the case when the, the, the parent tried to take the cards away. Compare that child's interest to the Yu-Gi-Oh cards with that child's interest in the word of God. And you'll see what I'm talking about. And obviously a child is too foolish to understand the dangers of these types of things. And tragically, many times parents are as well. You know, the word of God says in Philippians 4, 8, let your mind dwell on things that are true and honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute. If there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And beloved, all I can tell you, not only as parents with children, but also just you as Christian adults, beware of what you allow to enter into your mind and into your heart, into the mind of the and heart of your child. Dear friends, Satan has an ingenious capacity to deceive. And he and his minions can influence people in very, very real ways. And that's why, again, we are warned over and over to beware of these things. The Lord said, for example, in Mark 6, 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And it's little wonder to me that the witchcraft cult of Wicca is gaining such popularity among our youth especially in our culture, young people, and you see them at the malls all the time. They proudly adorn themselves in all of this black garb and cover their bodies with tattoos and and poke all kinds of metal things through their bodies, grotesque pieces of metal. And what's really tragic is sometimes you see so-called Christian people following suit, following suit with these pagan practices that are so offensive to a holy God. And beloved, may I remind you that the Lord has called us to come out and be separate from the world, not to become like it. It's interesting in Leviticus 19, for example, verse 26, we see that God forbids any form of bodily mutilation and even tattooing. There he said, you shall not practice divination or soothsaying. Those are forbidden forms of witchcraft used to tell the future. And in verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body. For the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. In those days, tattoos, by the way, were used to claim allegiance to some idol. And usually the name of that idol was included in the marking on the body. And they were therefore permanent brands, if you will, of idolatry and apostasy. And that was offensive to a holy God. It's interesting, an older man whose body was covered with tattoos, later came to Christ and I was talking with him one day and it's interesting, he said to me how much he regretted, quote, painting graffiti on the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was an excellent way of putting that. Folks, all all I'm wanting you to see here as we look at this text this morning is we should be so, so careful to eliminate anything that exalts the kingdom of darkness And subtly and systematically desensitize us to those things that are abhorrent to a holy God. And forbidden in Scripture. Well, the Samaritans were blind to all of this, even though they knew some of the Scriptures. 
But they did not heed, for example, what Deuteronomy 18.10 and following tells us. There shall not be, God says, found among you anyone who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Well, obviously, Simon had no respect for the things of God. He liked being worshipped. And in verse 10, it says, from the smallest to the greatest, they were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what's called the great power of God. So again, I would submit to you that this man was a Samaritan celebrity enjoying his fortune and fame until Philip showed up. Notice what happens in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. Now, folks, this is really bad for business. If you're Simon, really bad for business. You know, there's a new show in town. And like the old saying goes, if you can't lick them, join them. And that's what he does. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. See, now again, here we see Simon believed. But as we look at the whole story, we see that his belief, his faith was a dead faith. You know, even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19 tells us. And here we begin to see the second mark of a cultist. Not only did Simon want to be worshipped, but he fashioned his own religions, his own religion, I should say. In other words, what we see here now is he adopts some of the trappings of Christianity and he is now going to kind of add some of the aspects of Christianity to his own beliefs. And he is going to concoct a theological system that would ultimately accommodate some of his own desires and his own beliefs. For these people, Scripture is not their authority, but rather their own feelings and thinkings, which are many times influenced by demons. Yes, he believed he was baptized and he continued on with Philip, as the text says. But as we learn more about his character and conduct, we see quickly that. He was never truly born again. There were never any fruits of genuine repentance in his life. Still motivated by pride. What Simon did was morph into being a Christian. You know what morphing is. You see it on television all the time. Something is one thing and then suddenly it turns into something else completely different. So he had an intellectual understanding of Christianity. And I see many people that are this way. They feel churches with this type of thinking, they understand the basics about God and the Bible and about Christ, but they've never truly been broken over their sin. They've never really seen the Savior for who he is. Simon evidently repeated the right prayer and he got baptized like all of the others. And now he's kind of got his Christian card punched and he blends in with all of the rest. But since he was never truly transformed by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. And since he was therefore not indwelt by the Holy Spirit that could restrain his flesh, 
And since he was therefore incapable of understanding the word of God and obviously powerless to apply it to his life, this man was in serious trouble and didn't know it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Anacrinitai in the original language is a judicial term that means uh, one who is incapable of rendering a decision because they cannot recognize the facts. They can see the truth of Scripture, but they have no biblical discernment. It makes no sense to them. And we've all spoken with people who are that way. Two plus two is going to be five theologically. It doesn't matter how you present it. His desire to purchase the power of the Spirit of God gives ample testimony to the fact that he was lost, not to mention his subsequent religious escapades. Now, it's important for you to understand something here. Have you ever wondered when you read some of these cult leaders how they came up with such incredible stuff and how, even though it's distorted, distorted, how clever it is. My goodness, talk about a good counterfeit. You look at it and it looks like the real thing, just like a counterfeit hundred dollar bill. But it's false. How do they get so brilliant at deceiving their followers? Well, the answer is because. They are not only unregenerate and they have no ability to understand the truth, but they are ultimately influenced by Satan, by demons. In fact, Paul speaks to this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He says, the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Those of you who understand some of Greek grammar here, you have a subjective genitive. And the doctrines of demons literally means teaching by demons. So many times these cult leaders claim that God has spoken to them. Well, I believe they have had something speak to them, but it's not God, but it's some demon. The text goes on to say that by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So again, you've got people that are proud. They love to be worshipped. They many times will externally embrace Christianity, but there's been no transformation in their heart. They have no capacity to understand the truth. And worse yet, as this text says, the conscience, which is that faculty that God has given us to be able to either confirm or to condemn something as truth or error or something in our lives, their conscience is now seared. The Greek term is one from which we get the word cauterize. If something is cauterized, it's seared. It's burned to a point that the nerve endings have no ability to send a signal to the brain. And that's why when you look at these people, they can come up with the most bizarre, fanciful, ingenious Yea, even blasphemous beliefs. And they can lie and they can steal and they can have the morals of an alley cat. They can abuse people in ways that are absolutely unconscionable and it doesn't faze them. Their conscience is seared. Now notice Simon's focus as he continues with Philip in verse 13. He says, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. 
As I thought about this, you know, we don't read anywhere in the text here that that he was amazed at sins forgiven. That he was ever amazed at the power of God to snatch him from the flames of hell. That he was amazed at somehow the transformation in his heart where now he had a new heart and a new mind and a new song. And his whole world view changed. He was not amazed at any of that because none of that had happened. What he was amazed at here is the very thing that he envied. And that was the power to do these kinds of miracles. To wow the people so that he could be worshipped even more. Make even more money. Manipulate even more people. Beloved, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. You will never be amazed at God's grace until you're first amazed at your sin. Well, not so for Simon. There's no indication here of the fruits of repentance and like. Every good charlatan, he saw salvation as merely kind of an addition to his life, not a radical transformation of the inner man. And like all ambitious entrepreneurs, he sees what's going on here with the crowd and he recognizes where the fame and fortune is. So he takes on a little Christianity for himself and gradually over time he fashions his own religion. But notice what happens next. Beginning of verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, in other words, this is what's going on. The Samaritans are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. God is lavishing His saving grace on those half-breed, pagan, idolatrous people? That can't be so. But it was. See, remember now, the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter, bitter enemies. So, in an effort to somehow unite the church, to unite the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem with their Samaritan half-brothers and Samaritan Christian counterparts, God sends the leaders of the apostles, Peter and John. That way there wouldn't become two churches. And don't you know that would have happened had God not done it this way. And I believe also the Samaritans needed to get to know the apostles, to understand that they needed to submit to them. So God does something very unusual here, as, by the way, is very typical during those embryonic days of the church when it was first established. In order to somehow destroy the prejudice between the Jewish Christians and now the Samaritan Christians, and in order to unite the church as well as to establish apostolic authority with the Samaritans, he makes the Samaritans wait to receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come and lay their hands upon them. And the apostles would then see this for themselves, see that indeed God has done this remarkable thing, and see that God used them now to impart the Spirit of God upon them, and they would see that this indeed is one church, because as Paul later would write in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So, verse 17, then they began laying their hands on them, And they were receiving the Holy Spirit. 
Now, later on, new believers would receive the spirit of God the moment they were born again. We know that scripture is very clear. First Corinthians 12, 13 says by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The very moment we are saved, that happens. Scripture does not teach, as some would try to argue, that we must receive the spirit of God subsequent to our salvation. Paul made that clear as well in Romans 8, verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it does not belong to him. So, the events surrounding the Samaritans here are really not normative for the church. But notice what happens with Simon, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when they received the Holy Spirit, they probably did the same thing as happened at Pentecost. They probably began to speak in other languages, praising God and explaining the gospel to others. This was too much for Simon. It's like, man, this is one of the greatest tricks I have ever seen. So here we have a man who wanted to be worshipped, who fashioned his own religion later on, but also now, thirdly, another mark of a cultist. He tries to purchase the grace of God. In other words, these people will do anything to be able to manipulate the supernatural to accomplish their ends. And unfortunately, what they end up manipulating are nothing more than Satan and his minions who are all too eager to participate in such a deception. So he says, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting. This is typical of all false teachers, as I thought about it. They see God as their servant, not themselves as his. In fact, this is at the heart of much of the deception, even in evangelicalism today. And it's the idea that God exists for you rather than you exist for him. And there is a huge difference. So God becomes nothing more than a means to an end. Kind of a genie that you put in a bottle and when you need him, you rub him and the deity comes forth. And basically a deity that can be bought and sold to other people and used to advance your own diabolical and selfish agenda. You know, all you have to do is turn on your television today and you'll see this. Just listen to many of the false teachers and you'll quickly see how they love to manipulate God for their own ends. Religious entrepreneurs, I call them, selling formulas to receive a personal miracle, to be healed of some physical infirmity or to become wealthy. I look, for example, at the sermon titles of Joel Osteen, who happens to be one of the most popular so-called evangelical preachers of this day. And I see this very thing. Here's a list of a few of them. Enlarge your vision. Holding on to your dreams. Financial property. How valuable you are in God's eyes. Overcoming the greatest hindrance to healing. Developing miracle working faith. Faith to change your world. Believe God for the greater works. Do all you can to become or to make your dreams come true. Living a life of excellence. Developing your potential. And on it goes. And what you hear over and over again these days is basically this. People come to Jesus and he will pour out his blessings upon you. And those blessings are basically defined within the realm of the temporal. 
In other words, what God will do if you know the formula. And by the way, for a little bit of money, I'll help you know what the formula is. But if you will come to Jesus, he will make you healthy, wealthy and wise. So Simon merely saw Philip and the apostles as fellow magicians, but with much greater power. Now Simon wants to buy it. He wants it. No matter what the cost. In fact, this is where the term simony originated. The act of buying and selling ecclesiastical offices and spiritual blessings and profiting from sacred things. Beloved, isn't it wonderful to know, and we can all rejoice in this, that the great gift of salvation and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are gifts of grace. They cannot be earned, because we could certainly never do that. They cannot be bought and they cannot be sold. Simon's selfish agenda blinded him to the fact that it is a sovereign God who dispenses his grace as he wills. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another, the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits to another, various kinds of tongues and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually. Now catch this just as he wills. It's interesting. There are churches today that you could go to that offer you classes so that you can learn how to speak in tongues. In fact, I've got a physician friend who applied to Oral Roberts University for a teaching position, and he showed me the application. And one of the questions was, do you speak in tongues? And if the answer is no, would you like to learn? In fact, numerous individuals that I've talked with report some of the extreme peer pressure when it comes to, for example, this whole gift of tongues and a common strategy that they will describe is that is that uh, your, your friends will will come around you and, and with great emotion, with great tears and basically say, you, you, you've got to you've got to get the spirit here. You've got to begin to speak in tongues. You need to just let go of all of your inhibitions. You need to start making sounds. I know it's going to sound crazy to you, but go ahead and let go and watch what God will do. The Spirit will take over. And before you know it, they begin to blah, 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 woulda, shoulda, coulda, bought a Yamaha. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, bought a Yamaha. Before you know it, everybody's yelling and screaming and, oh, he's got the gift. And here we go. You know, if that were true, why is there not one single example of this kind of thing in Scripture? Well, these are the teachings, I believe, of false teachers. So this man wanted to be worshipped. He fashioned his own religion. He tried to purchase the grace of God. And finally, he refused to repent of his sin and renounce his past. You know, Peter was horrified at Simon's request. In verse 20, we read, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. The reprobate lost condition of Simon's heart is here proven. And Peter mixes no words in telling him this. I was reading a number of commentators on this particular passage, and, and it's funny how many of them quoted J.B. Phillips' translation that really has a very accurate 
a way of portraying the Greek phrase that Peter used. And it's basically this. Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. Well, here's a man that loved to be worshipped, that, that externally added a little Christianity to his life and then gradually added his own spin to his distorted, heretical understanding of the gospel, fashioning his own religion. A man that would try to buy the grace of God and manipulate God for his own ends, as if God was some kind of a commodity that could be bought and sold. And now here the Spirit of God exposes his true nature, the true nature of his heart, demonstrating that indeed this man never repented of his sin and never renounced his past. And beloved, I would say to you that this is the very core of salvation. You've got to understand, as Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself. The word deny literally means to renounce yourself, to want nothing to do with your old self. To look at your old self and say, my, I was going in the wrong direction. I want nothing to do with that. I see the hideousness of my sin. I see the holiness of God. And I'm going to go in this direction if it costs me my life. That's what salvation is. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself said in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What's the striving? Agoniste in the original in, in the original language. We get our word agonized from that. It's the idea of engaging in a life and a death struggle. And it means to literally strain with every fiber of your being to strain, shall we say, to squeeze through that narrow door. And the reason that is so hard is because that is the door of repentance. That is the door of renouncing your past and being horrified with it and turning and moving in a different direction. And that is completely contrary to everything that is a part of our sinful nature. We absolutely despise self-denial. We abhor repentance because we love our sin. And that's why Jesus said, you're going to have to strive. But isn't it wonderful that by God's grace that can be accomplished? We could never do it on our own. So he refused to repent of his sin and renounce his past. Peter says to him finally in verse 22, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Here, my friends, is a Hebraism used to express the hideous effects of sin upon the soul, to express the bitterness of regret, the bitter tears of repentance, the bitter sufferings and even death that Sin will produce lest one repents. But notice Simon refused to repent. He said, but Simon answered and said, verse 24, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Obviously here, Peter's rebuke was sobering to Simon. But we see no indication that he cast himself upon the mercy of the Lord in genuine repentance. He basically is saying, call off the curse. <laughs> Call off the spell. You see, his only concern was for what God would do to him in this life, not for eternity. And once again, betraying the lost condition of his soul, he, like so many sinners, is willing to have others pray for his condition, but he's not willing to pray himself. Worse yet, he had no sense of his sin, did he? He was not overwhelmed with his sin. He was only struck with the punishment that it might produce. 
And like all sinners who refuse to repent, Simon probably continued on his whole life in the gall of bitterness and died in the bond of iniquity. Dear friends, may I challenge you this morning to examine your heart. Make sure that you have not deceived yourself into thinking you know Christ when you don't. And then also, beware of those who love to be worshipped. I think they're easily spotted. Beware of those who fashion their own religion. And the only way you're going to know that is to know the truth so that you can spot the counterfeit. Guard yourself from anyone that tries to buy or sell supernatural blessings. Because indeed, those will be the people who have never repented of their sins and forsaken their past. And finally, I would just humbly say to you as your pastor, dear friends, please, please, please be on guard for this, the clever schemes of the devil. He is so far more ingenious than you can ever imagine. And be on guard yourselves as well as your children for any way that you might systematically desensitize yourself from the kingdom of darkness and the world of the occult and all of those things that God finds abhorrent. Because unless you do, you will suddenly get sucked into that and it will suddenly begin to morph your mind and your thoughts as we were talking earlier in communion. And you will gradually, without knowing it, unwittingly, have the stamp of the world upon you, you will gradually become more like the world. And the things of God will no longer be as pure and as holy and as glorious as they once were. Because now you are enamored with the things of the kingdom of darkness. And you will forfeit blessing in your life. And you will see your children forfeit blessing in their life. Unless you help them and guard them. So let's all examine our hearts to these great and glorious ends. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths of your word. May we hide them in our heart. May they cause us, Lord, to look closely at every aspect of our Christian life. That we might indeed be on guard for the great deceivers that are out there. And Lord, to also be on guard even of our own hearts that are perfectly capable of deceiving us. Thank You, Lord, for the power of Your Spirit that can accomplish all of these things. For it's in Jesus' name and for His glorious purposes that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.